0: What's up everybody, I'm Mike Wilson with Any AnyHour Services and we're proud to help bring you this podcast. If you ever need a resource for information about your home's electrical, plumbing, heating or air conditioning system, you can find AnyHour
1: Services on Facebook, YouTube or online at AnyHourServices.com. Hi, this is Scott Trout, CEO of the domestic litigation firm Cordell & Cordell. There are many life changes that can happen after divorce that make it difficult or impossible to uphold requirements of your divorce decree. The orders issued in a divorce are based on the facts presented at that time. But the circumstances used in issuing those orders can obviously change. If you feel a modification to your court orders might be necessary, talk to us at Cordell & Cordell. Contact CordellCordell.com, 1065 East Hillsdale Boulevard, Suite 310, Foster City, California, 94404.
0: Welcome to Ideation Collective. Today on the show, we've got Joseph May.
1: I don't want to be the guy that's like sitting on the couch thinking to himself, i thought of that idea for that backpack five years ago. So I was just like, I'm just going to do it. And so I started waking up at 4.30 in the morning and just like, all right, how do I do a crowdfunding campaign? This is another episode of
0: our Innovation and Leadership series, where we interview rocket scientists, pro athletes, CEOs, Hollywood filmmakers, and a wide variety of other high achievers. Now, before we jump into the show, I want to cover a couple of things. First, I'm really excited to announce our first sponsor. Today's show is brought to you by Intel. On Thursday, Cinco de Mayo, please check out World Password Day that Intel is helping to promote. The website is passwordday.org. Second, please consider getting involved with the charity our founder started called Child Rescue that's helping build an aftercare orphanage for child sex trafficking survivors in Cusco, Peru. There's details in the Child Rescue tab from the menu on our site. And last, we have a new free program coming out that teaches entrepreneurs the techniques and the legal checklists that our instructors have used to raise tens of millions of dollars for other companies. If you want early access to the free program, please sign up for free at iCollective.co slash fundraise. Again, iCollective.co slash fundraise. So with that out of the way, let's get to the interview. Joseph, thanks for being on the show.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: So uh, pretty pretty excited for the show today because your success is so recent you know we're a big fan of things that can spur innovation and, and help entrepreneurs get a foothold and, and get from a good idea to a good business. And uh, your recent crowdfunding success is is a clear example of that. Um, can you can you tell people a bit about uh, you know setting a goal of forty thousand and and what your product was and what you hit?
1: Yeah, so we started. Um, so I started the Kickstarter on March first. And the goal was, like you said, was forty thousand. Sell forty thousand dollars worth of bags, and and we ended up uh, selling two hundred forty-two thousand dollars in bags, and and just kind of had a crazy, fun time of <laughs> lots of ups and downs. But in the end, it, it ended up working out really well. And and uh, for anybody who hasn't
0: seen your campaign, tell us about what's different about your modern day briefcase.
1: Sure. So it's um it's a it's a backpack. We call the modern-day briefcase, um, and it's it's a backpack that's designed to to kind of function like a briefcase, and that it keeps everything organized that you that you need to take with you. Um, one of the problems I found when I traveled a lot uh, for work um, was that you know most backpacks don't have a lot of organizational pockets, so everything just kind of ends up in a ball. And then I actually ended up getting a backpack when I traveled a lot they kept everything organized but it was kind of like your classic nylon backpack you'd see on any college campus and I was in Italy uh, about a year and a two years ago almost and I was going around meeting all these different vendors and building relationships and trying to work with them and and I'm at this huge leather conference and everyone has these nice leather satchels or attaches and I just kind of felt out of place with like this nylon backpack and I remember thinking like well I want to have a backpack because they're comfortable and convenient and they're great for traveling, but like I want to have one that looks nice. And so I ended up going around looking for different bags that had like a professional look, like a backpack that had waxed cotton and leather and was, uh, you know, be durable and last long. And, and I, as I started looking around, I found a lot of nice bag, nice looking backpacks. But the problem is once you open up the backpack, it was just kind of like an empty shell. There were no pockets, no place to store all your, wi- all your cords and wires and what ends up happening when you have something like that is you just end up with like this ball of electronics, you know, ball of wires all wrapped up. And so I, um, I just kind of had this idea and I was like, hey, I'm going to design a backpack that I can use for traveling, use for work, that looks really professional, but is also really convenient and comfortable like most backpacks.
0: Well, I got to say, I-, I was really impressed. I mean, when you first told me, you know, we met and you were going to have me on your podcast, which we'll talk about, but... Um, and you 're like oh i 'm doing a Kickstarter for a backpack it didn't i don 't know it didn 't really stand out to me at first until when I saw the prototype. I was like, Oh, this is what you 're talking about like it's yes, super nice you know thank you thank you
1: yeah yeah it's uh, it is and then we 've also kind of learned how to talk about it a little bit more to explain the value the value of it since we first talked
0: sure um right. let let 's talk about you know how unlike most people who are like, Oh, we should do, we should do a crowdfunding campaign. And, you know, a couple, couple weeks later, a month later, they're, they're doing it. Let's talk about the lead up of, of, you know, the preparation that made this possible. Um, so after your legal career, you completely shift and become a chief operating officer at a startup. Um, and, and you learn the product business. Um, tell us a little bit about, uh, tell us a little bit about freshly picked and they're selling 300,000 pairs of Kids moccasins.
1: Yeah, that was uh, a that, that. I mean, I just kind of like fell into that job very luckily. <laughs> I was an attorney, and uh, I was getting pretty miserable in my job. And um, Susan Peterson's my older sister. She's a CEO, of freshly picked. And we were talking on the phone, and I I was like, "Man, I hate my job," <laughs> and I was kind of starting to look, you know, okay, maybe I should try to transition out of legal and try to get into business but it was just really hard because people look at you like well you're an attorney what can you do and and we were talking and she just said hey why don't you come to operations and legal for me
0: gotta love the family hookup right
1: yeah and I was like oh are you serious and she's like yeah like when when do you want to start and I was like well I could start like today (laughs) and I just kind of started like it was the easiest job interview I ever had in my life and um no is this before
0: she got the shark tank investment or after when was that
1: so this was uh, after she'd got the investment, but before she went on TV. So this was December 2013, I believe, or 2000, yeah, 2013. And then she went on Shark Tank January 2014. Okay. Yeah. So that's, that. well, that's when the, the airing was. And so I was there about 30 days before the Shark Tank airing. And then it, it was basically just like, I just felt like I was standing in front a, high, a fire hose every day because like I had no like operations training or other training I guess you would t- you would get if you uh, were trained as like a I think there's like a business strategist degree or something you can get where you learn how to analyze numbers and stuff like that I was just kind of like flying by the seat of my pants and just trying to get everything in place with you know a small team and you know trying to build up a team of the right people who could help push the you know the operations side of the company forward and and it was a crazy year i mean it was it was insane I we grew 500 percent that year um and just i mean it was just crazy like everything was just crazy everything was accelerated like just the speed of everything was so fast and uh it was i mean it was so much fun like comparative to like being an attorney to like my life like a year later it was like night and day like i was just <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's just like, I enjoyed like every second of it. It was just so much fun. Like just every day you get up, you know, you're just, and there's so much to do and it was so different every day and it was just awesome. And it was kind of just like getting like my entrepreneurial, like just getting my feet wet a little bit and being like, Oh, this is what I want to do. I don't want to be an attorney. And, and, uh, and that just kind of like got me thinking about, okay, what could I do? You know, when this ends or when we move on and yeah, well, that's kind of how the whole process started.
0: And you think, you know, I'm looking at the Forbes article about her and and you know, sounds like after the five hundred percent year there was another three hundred percent year or something like that for year two. Yeah. There uh but you know, how much of it do you feel like um there's like a believability factor for you when you see her, you know, starting with an Etsy store and then growing like she does and going on to sell three hundred thousand pairs? Um, I mean, besides the connections of just seeing your own, like, <laughs> you know, I think yeah. about my brother that I own businesses with and have in the past, right? And it's like, there's this factor of like, well, you know how similar you are to them. And if they can do it, maybe this isn't the, mo- you know, maybe this isn't the hardest thing.
1: Yeah. I think for me, um, like, I, and maybe not everyone thinks this, but I think kind of like growing up, it's always like, oh, I want to own my own business or I want to work for myself. Everyone kind of has, at least I kind of had that inclination, but it was always like, well, where, where would I even start?
0: Mm. And
1: like working for spending time around Susan, it was just kind of like seeing the process of like, Oh, this is where you start. And this is what you do. Like you just do these things and it. And it's like, well, they're not really that hard and not, not to like discredit anything Susan's done, but it's just like, Oh, you just do those things and you try them. And if they work, then and you do more of those things you know like so yeah, I mean, just like obviously seeing-
0: she had some great product market fit i mean yeah, my, yeah. my wife loves buying that exact same stuff for our kids you know what i mean yeah. like she had something people clearly people wanted right yeah
1: yeah well i mean and just kind of seeing it like it's almost like going to college again really like that first year of just like <laughs> just seeing the process of like oh you want to do this you and and just kind of how you did it like if you want to make a new product like You draw, you know, you come up with an idea, you go to a manufacturer, they give you a sample, you tell them how to fix it, they give you a new sample, you know, and then you have your, your golden sample and then you start selling that. And, you know, seeing the different channels of how to sell it, like, you know, you have social media, Instagram, building, like, working with influencers to build relationships. I mean, just seeing those things and it was just like, oh, this is what you do. Like, you just do these things and either, you know, and it, it kind of like. I mean, I don't know if I came away thinking like, oh, it's really easy as much as just like, oh, this is just the process. Like all of a sudden it just became very like, oh, there's a process. These are steps. Here's the first step. Here's the second step. And by the time I got to the point where I was like, kind of thinking about this backpack idea, it was more, it was just going to be like a hobby type thing. And it was just like, okay, well, I need a sample. And I knew exactly who to call and how to do it, you know? And then, oh, I want to do social media or I want to have influencers. And so it was like, okay, well, who will move the needle in this space? Like who's connected, who, like who would push young professionals or who would buy things for young professionals and finding influencers that could connect to those customers. And just, I mean, that's just like what I saw at Freshly Picked is it was just like, oh, these are the things you do and you just go do them, you know? And kind of seeing that just kind of opened all that up for me.
0: You know, It it is such an advantage having a mentor, though, and and being able to see someone who's actually done it instead of theoretically telling ourselves it's possible. Yeah. um, One of the books I was reading recently, listening on my audio, uh, they called it the windshield effect. You know, it's this like how many sons end up going to the same business their dad, you know. How many um, sons of a cop become a cop, or sons of a doctor become a doctor, dentist, right? Yeah. Because they've seen their dad do it, they know how it works, and they're interested in the result, right? Yeah. And you look at Hollywood, you know, how many times there's there's James Franco first, and then there's Dave Franco, not that many years later, right? Yeah. And that windshield effect of of seeing it done and and knowing what the formula is, right? And yeah, sure, maybe it's not easy, but it at least it's viewed as possible. Like A, you know what it is. So it's not the unknown and B, it seems possible. Right.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: Um, so, uh, for instance, this, this education you got being the chief operating officer, tell us about what that looked like day to day at a, you know, massively growing, you know, 812% (laughs) net income growth startup.
1: Yeah. Um, it was, uh, it was crazy. Like um, let me try to kind of take a step back. It's been, you know, eight or nine months or so since I've been there, my day started pretty fast. Like, you know, I'd get up, I I've always been an early riser. So I'd get up and kind of spend like an hour doing things for myself, like, you know, reading books or exercising. And then after that, I was just on emails until I'd get to work, like answering emails of manufacturers getting with, um, you know, handling legal issues that arose. Um, you know, a big part of what we were doing was working with the manufacturers to make sure we were getting product on time, making sure the product was going out on time, quality checking the material that was coming in to make sure it was up to quality and just, um, you know, making sure the finances, the finance end was correct, which, you know, we had a great, it was a great, um, had a great team on the finance stuff. And so I would say the majority of what I did was around manufacturing and fulfillment. Kind of like making sure everything was getting made on time and then making sure everything was getting fulfilled on time. And then we were also doing analytics, like making sure growth was going according to schedule and trying to figure out other ways that the growth could be improved and stuff like that. So, I mean, those are just like a small... (laughs) small sample size i'm I'm trying to think back it's hard to remember i I do remember that when i stopped working for freshly picked and i kind of went out on my own i look at i found myself just like looking at my phone all the time or checking like oh did an email come in (laughs) and it took me a while to be like oh like i don't have like it was like kind of like oh nobody wants nobody wants to talk to me anymore part (laughs) of it but it was also just like holy crap like i would always like get emails like you know i mean i would stay up late at night and talk to people if if we were doing stuff in Asia, uh, you know, communicate with vendors over there. And just, it was just busy. It was all day, every day. It seemed like just there was always something to do. And, and so
0: did, did that include the interactions? Like I know that, um, the website is obviously a huge track traffic driver and they've done really great of, of selling direct and, uh, the website having high traffic, but, uh, they're in Nordstrom's also, aren't they?
1: Yeah, and that was just getting going as I was transitioning out. Yeah, um, I think they're much higher level than we were when I was there. Um, I, I really don't know honestly, but that was just kind of starting as I was transitioning out, and so I wasn't too. I mean, it was kind of we were still figuring it out, and I think they brought in people who, um, who've done like re- wholesale sales before now that really have a better handle on how those deals should work and how to um, communicate with the, the vendors and stuff like that.
0: Sure. So let, let's
1: talk about the Bretton
0: company, by the way, uh, how'd you choose the name?
1: It's a great question. Uh, so I, uh, I was the, so for me, so since I'm an attorney, when I looked at it, I was like, I want a name that I can get the trademark for and the URL. Cause that's one of the like universal problems for companies that start and don't can't get the trademark or the URL together, then they're kind of screwed and they have to pivot on name or they have to go buy the URL for someone. So that was the first um, way that that was like my first test. If I came up with a name, the first thing I would do is I would check trademark and URL availability. And so I, for about a month, I was just kind of going through different names and I was coming up with like stupid names that were just, you know, had nothing to do with my company. And I was talking to my wife one day about how I wanted to have products that I wanted to have a product that lasted like something that, like a workhorse person could just take and just beat the crap out of for 15 years. And it still looks good and it still works. And my wife and I, the word workhorse just kind of stuck with my wife and she started looking up workhorse breeds because, and they have like all these great names of workhorse breeds like Clydesdales, and I can't think of the other ones, but there's like just these great names for breeds and they're very, they have very strong names. And, and the one we just kind of gravitated towards was Bretton company. And, and that was partly because we could get the URL, we could get all the social media handles and we could get the trademark. So we got that one.
0: <laughs> so l- let's talk about, you know, the planning phase at the very end of 2014, uh, sure. at, through the launch in March of 2016.
1: Sure. Yeah. So I, uh, I started, um, so I told you I was in Italy and I had this idea for this bag and I came home and I kind of had this, you know, this aha moment in there and where I was like, wow, oh, if I could have this bag and. And I was like, well, but I have a full time job. So I'm not going to do this. And I was actually working on like a online class for copyrights to help people understand copyrights in their business and stuff like that. So I was just too busy. And I kind of put it on the shelf and that I remember thinking like, well, I'm sure somebody will come up with like somebody will do this one day and I can just buy the bag I want. And I was actually reading I found these quotes online somewhere when I was like looking and reading the news. It was like top 10 Mark Cuban quotes. And I was reading through them and, and he had this quote where he said, you know, in business, you gotta, you gotta beat your own. He's like, you gotta beat your own. ass. You gotta be be willing to like beat yourself in business because if you don't, everyone around you is going to beat you. So you have to, you have to beat yourself. And, and uh, it really like, it just kind of like that, that comment, that quote just kind of resonated with me. And for a couple of days, I just kept thinking like, I don't want to be the guy that's like sitting on the couch, thinking to himself, I thought of that idea for that backpack five years ago. And they, they've they done really well with it. But I thought of it first because I've had ideas before where something comes along later, and you're like, oh, I, I kind of thought of something like that, but I didn't never did anything with it. So I was just like, I'm just going to do it. And so I started waking up at 430 in the morning, like, I think the next day, and just like, all right, how do I do a crowdfunding campaign? And and i found there was like this 80 page study that was done by a university in canada that was put that i think shopify paid for or it was on shopify's site that just went through everything on crowdfunding from like how many rewards you should offer to the average price to how long your video should be to how Do I think quickly you still have you a link fund. to that do you, um, do you think you have that I'll, anywhere I'm sure I do. I'll, I'll find it and I can send it to you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, We'll
0: we'll put it on your page on, on Joseph's page on iCollective.co. We'll we'll post that.
1: Yeah. And so it just, it was this incredible document. It took me about a month to go through it just because I went, like I went through it page by page and I kind of started like almost like as a boring attorney, just being like, all right, well, let's go to the source and just get as much source information as we can to kind of understand what is a, a Kickstarter. And so that, that took about a month and then, you know, figuring out the name and forgetting kind of like getting the URL figured out as we were, as we were working on the design. And and then I just kind of started figuring out like what's the successful, what's the most successful backpack Kickstarter that sold a kick uh, backpack on a crowdfunding campaign. And, and I, f- I came up with a list of like 10 or 15 of them. And I just went and studied each one, each one of these uh, campaign pages. That's the great thing about the campaigns is they're just there and, and there's all these ways um, to like kind of hack through what they who who talked about them, who, who did their marketing, stuff like that. There's these great back channels. And that's actually on a, a Tim Ferriss blog post called Hacking Kickstarter. And one of the companies he's associated with raised $100,000 in 10 days. And they just lay out their whole strategy and plan and how they executed it
0: okay, we'll on to, this
1: blog post. We'll have
0: to link to that too.
1: Yeah, we'll get the link to that too. And... And so those like the Shopify document and the Tim Ferriss blog post kind of became my text of where I worked from on everything On everything I did was like, okay, well these are like the steps. Like I have to know, you know, who the best backpack blogs are to hit up and get them to post on it. Who, you know, who's going to be actually buying the product. And so I spent a ton of time working on that as we were developing and sampling out the product. And we actually, I actually planned on doing the, the kickstarter in august and i left freshly picked in july and i was like well it's great i'll be doing this kickstarter in 30 days and <laughs> and the sampling didn't work out and we had all these problems and so we pushed it back and pushed it back pushed it back and then we were going to be pushing it back into november and at that point it's just like look we can't launch it in in november like we can't compete with all these other ad dollars that are being spent by big huge companies that want money they want the christmas money that's available for christmas and we wouldn't even be able to deliver it until after Christmas. So we waited until after the new year, until March, when kind of spending picks up again, the trends kind of pick up again in, in uh, retail. That's when people start to spend money and generally is in March. So we just waited until March 1st to, to kind of kick it off again. Um, and in that, I mean, there were so many things. I mean, we, you know, we did. Like, because you went, yeah, t- tell us about,
0: let's talk about the sample, for instance. How long did it sure. take to get the sample made and then how long to get
1: corrected? Sure. So it started with me just like having these bags. Like I have this nice satchel and I have like this really great bag for traveling that I mentioned. And so I was like, okay, how do I put those together? And I took them to a friend of mine who's a manufacturer or an agent for manufacturers. And I said, Hey, I want to put these together. And so he's like, well, draw me something. And so I drew something on like in uh, paint in a uh, Google paint <laughs> and you know, and I've made a tech pack with a, how I pointed arrows, how I wanted everything to look. And it came back just wrong like it, because it, you know, I didn't have like, I couldn't draw, I didn't know how to draw things like an Adobe, um, uh, Adobe, not edition, Adobe. Illustrator maybe? Illustrator, yeah, AI. Yeah, I didn't know how to draw things like to make them look really nice. And so like I would give them these dumb drawings and I would get these dumb products back because I that's all I could give them. And, and I kind of got to a point where I have a friend, um, I got to a point where I was just kind of frustrated because I wasn't getting what I wanted, what was in my head and, and so I went and approached one of my friends who's a, an industrial design student. And I said, look, man, I need some help. Can you draw this out and put the tech pack together? And, and he was, so I helped him, I showed him how to do, make a tech pack and what he should be doing. And, and he helped me put it all together. Like he kind of took the design from where out of my head and put it on the paper. And we were able to get that to a manufacturer um, and get like a sample. I remember when the first time the sample showed up, After I would like, worked with the industrial designer, I was just like, oh, that's what I wanted. Like, that's exactly what I wanted. And so, like, I just kind of, like, had to get over not doing it myself and just being like, well, this person can do it faster and better than me. And once I did, like, all of a sudden we had the product we wanted. And that took, like, seven months (laughs) to get there. Starting in July, it wasn't until, like, early August when we finally got, like, okay, that's the direction we want to go. And
0: because you'd worked with manufacturers before, is it at that point that you had the confidence? Hey, if these things sell, I will be able to produce what I say I can produce.
1: Yeah, I was. That was like to me. That's that was always the part that scared me the least about doing it. Is going and working with manufacturers and getting the product through, like uh, you know, getting to having a tech pack and getting the product delivered on time. Like that, I was so comfortable with that because I had just done that for like a year and a half, just every day working on that and working with manufacturers, learning how to talk to them, learning how to like understand their expectations or understand what they needed to fulfill the products. And that stuff was like very, I was very comfortable with that. And even like the sampling process, when I mean, I kind of went through this year and a half of just like working with manufacturers every day. That when I wanted to do something on my own, I had built up all these relationships, and I actually didn't even have to end up paying for one of my samples. All my samples were done for free, or um, you know that they or they were like, "Well, look, you couldn't pay us for these after your Kickstarter. We'll do them now to help you out." And so I just built up all these great relationships. So I didn't have to pay for any sampling. I got great rates on fabric and leather that I wouldn't have gotten had I not been in that position and just got that repetition and built up, built up all these relationships.
0: You know, that really brings up a key. I I had a, I had a a guy who I was doing a bit of coaching for recently talking about, Hey, I've got this opportunity. It doesn't pay what I want to make. In fact, I think I'm going to have to work for them for free at first. Is it worth, you know, like, what do you think? Yeah. And I was asking him like, well, that, you know, the answer to that is highly dependent on what your destination is. Like, yeah. Is this a stepping stone for that other thing you want to do? Or is this what you want to do? Because like trading your hours for dollars or working for less than you want to or things like this in order to learn the acronyms of that business and build the relationships and have connections like you're talking about. Yeah. Is, you know, you have to weigh like, is there another way to get that as fast and and these kind of things and, you know, look at what an advantage it was for you when you decided to do your own thing, right? Yeah. So, um, talk about, um, the marketing, like the influencers, you talked about building relationships yeah. with influencers. So, uh, maybe talk for just a second on your methodology for identifying and then how do you reach out without it being a me, me, me type of thing?
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. that Those are the hard things, hard things. Um, so in the methodology, the first thing I looked for was style, like men's style influencers just because people who buy like nice items or more expensive items got, you know, follow men's influencers on social media. Um, the second thing I actually did is I started looking around and just kind of studying buying habits online and like, you know, how do people buy products? Like who's buying what for who? And I found this really great article. I think it was on Forbes or might even on the New York times that talked about how women, women buy more for their partners then the partners buy for themselves. You know, they buy for their kids, they buy for their parents, they buy for their husbands and, and, you know, friends. I mean, they just buy so much for other people that one of our strategies, so one of our strategies was to kind of find men's influencers that could help us out. But another strategy was to market to the women of people that would be in our market to kind of go that route to get them to say, hey, look at this bag. I'm going to buy it for you. Because I, and it, you know, I, I don't know if this is the same for you, but my wife will come to me and be like, Hey, do you want these shoes? And I'm like, yeah, they look great. And I probably seen the same shoes online or something, but I would, I just didn't buy them because I just don't buy a lot of things for myself. I just don't. <laughs> and so there's, Oh, go ahead. Sorry.
0: No, no. That's funny. I I think there's a lot of men that fall into that category, right?
1: Yeah. Cause I mean, and, you know, you're just busy and you just don't, I, I don't like shopping as it is. I I can't even stand going into a store to go shopping and and uh, just kind of for whatever reason, I've just never enjoyed it. And so but that was another way that we targeted it is we went through because it's kind of our target is like younger professionals that are in the ages of kind of like 22 to 35 in their first job or kind of, you know, before they start to feel old, but still want to feel, you know, still want to have a nice bag with them. And so that was just one of our target areas. And so we kind of I started kind of following all these influencers on Instagram and other social media outlets and. Well, how do they do their message? Who do they message? And, and I was sitting around one day thinking like, man, how can I kind of like start pulling these people in and start building relationships with them? Cause I knew quite a few of the influencers that could reach out, that could um, influence women buyers for their husbands or, or even, you know, that would like the product themselves through freshly picked just by the fact that being there, I met all these influencers and made all these connections with people who were willing to help me. And I had an idea to start a podcast because, and I realized like, so if I had a podcast and I can go to all these influencers and I can say, Hey, look, let me interview you. You can, you know, be a great opportunity for you to tell your story about who you are and, you know, allow people to become more connected to what you're doing and, you know, just kind of build a better relationship with your, your followers or the people you sell your products to. And, you know, and then, you know, I'd set up these interviews, go interview them, go talk to them for an hour, an hour and a half. And build like a good relationship with them that so that when I wanted to come back and say, Hey, I'm running this Kickstarter, would you mind, you know, throwing something up on your Instagram or your social media? Like most of them said yes,
0: dude. I knew it was <laughs> an evil ploy the whole time. I was like, This is totally an evil ploy.
1: I want, well, but it, but it, so I had like kind of, you know, I had to, yeah, I, I want to build these relationships, I want to meet people not only that, you know, can help no, me, no, but I can,
0: I think it's genius. You know, I'm I'm laughing about, you know, you had me on the show, on your show before ours launched, obviously, and um, I actually got good response back, so it was kind of a fun test for this thing starting. But um, I'm I'm laughing about your previous marketing statement, because I think when you, you know, when you reached out to me and I posted it on my social, a bunch of the people who reacted, I mean, the numbers were attention getting. And so I think that's some of the people that commented on when I posted about your stuff. But the other one was definitely some of those women that I know buy stuff on behalf of their husbands (laughs) were the ones that got back to me. So hopefully that sold some backpacks.
1: Well, I I mean, I hope so. Maybe, or even maybe down the road, you know, maybe more of a long tail, uh, (laughs) push there. Yeah. This show, right. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah. By the way, there will be a link on show on Joe's show where you can buy the backpack. I want to talk about another marketing thing real quick. Um, you know, I feel like one of the things that, uh, you know, has shown to to do really high view counts and and have a lot of spreadability, viral, viral possibilities or whatever, is making stuff that's funny. Uh, but yeah. it's such a two edged sword because yeah. if you're not a real comedian, so often it doesn't turn out funny. So yeah. your video though will the, will the modern day briefcase fit your lunch? Which we'll post. You know, we'll post on your page on I yeah, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, t- Tell me where the idea for this video came from and. And tell me whose thought it was to have him stuff a hot pizza into this really nice suitcase briefcase yeah. with no words. Like there's no there's you know, it's like the silence actually makes it funnier.
1: Yeah, Jack does a really good the guy that, that did that that did the acting, he just he he nailed that. So it all started kind of our, our campaign kind of slowed down at one point and um you know, you talked about having mentors and I you know I was able to call my sister and say hey you know things are slowing down can I come talk to you I need some help just can I bounce some ideas off of you and she's like oh sure so I went and stopped by and, and we were talking and she's like you need a way to get people's attention to get them to come to your site she's like because you know Kickstarter is going to kind of wane off and you need something else and and I think she I'm pretty sh- like there's uh, these video there's a it's called Tasty it's an Instagram feed called Tasty and it's just videos of someone like preparing food. And it's this overhead shot and it's very quick into the 15 seconds. they'll prepare like a huge cake, you know, and like people just watch these all the time. And she had the idea of like, well, you should make videos that show um, people packing stuff and putting it in bags or, you know, will it fit type stuff. And so she kind of got the idea going in my head. And, um, the guy, uh, the people who made my video for my Kickstarter names big, they're called big door productions and they're down here in in Provo close to where I live. And and so I called them and said, Hey, I have another idea. Let me, you know, let's do this thing where we take, make it kind of funny, but then we can kind of show like a, a pack video where it shows, you know, packing up a lot of stuff into a bag, but we'll do like a funny part where it's, you know, we, we try to put a pizza and, you know, I just, and so they, they actually came up with the pizza and, and putting it in the bag and, and they did such a good job on coming up with the concept and making it funny. And then having the pack video after the funny part to show like, you know, like not everyone's going to have a pizza, so let's pack a sensible luncheon. You know, and they pack like a realistic lunch and put it in the bag with all the other business stuff. So, mm. uh, um, so we're we're just starting that campaign. We actually have nine more videos, and we're going to release one one a week for the next nine weeks. And we're releasing another one uh, tonight, um, and then we'll just kind of every week release a new one and and see if we can get some momentum on them and see if we can kind of build uh, posts. Um, Kickstarter campaign that will kind of drive the needle for our, ourselves.
0: Uh, P.S. as a podcaster, how much do I like that uh, in your photography you've got the H4N <laughs> recorder <laughs> getting stuck? Yeah, well, your- I,
1: I take that with me everywhere because I, when I go interview people for my podcast, I just take the H4N and my the guy who helps me with my photographs, we we were going to take some more photographs of my bag and I had it in there and he's like, take that out of there. And I was like, why? It like, looks really cool. He's like, nobody has any idea what that is. <laughs> he's like, nobody cares. And I was like, oh man. <laughs> so I'm glad, I'm glad that somebody else cares. That yeah, yeah. Else the, noticed, the both of us know, care. This is, this is, this is, is. great. <laughs>
0: um, for everybody yes. who doesn't know what that is, it's, it's just a, it's a great audio recorder. A lot of people use it for video, um, mobile podcast guys like us use it sometimes. Um, P.S. I uh, I really like your product photography. I think it's something that not enough people put enough thought into. Um, who did yeah. you use,
1: and why did you choose them? And so, this is another freshly picked thing. Uh, the guy who does all the photographer for photography for freshly picked, his name's Weston Colton. He's a phenomenal photographer. As far as products like doing product photography, he is so incredible and. I reached out to him. He costs a lot of money. I remember looking at the price, like how much he, how much he charged me an hour to do it. And I was like, man, that's going to be expensive. And I thought about, you know, maybe I could do it on my own or maybe I could hire someone else who's cheaper. And, and ultimately for me, it was like, look, like people aren't going to be able to touch the bag. All they can see is this picture or this video and that's it. And they're going to make a buying decision on it. And I want to have the best video and the best photos I can have. So I picked him and well, I mean, luckily, I mean, I say I picked him, he, he was kind enough to do it for me because he's such a busy guy and, uh, he did just a phenomenal job and, and he really like makes the bag pop off the page and makes it so you, you, you know, you feel like you're, like you're in the same room as it, he does such a good job with it.
0: Yeah. I, again, well done. Um, and, and your video too, like, you know, I like the way that, uh, it's showing the water resistantness of the bag yeah. without this, like in your face or over the top infomercial type of feel, you know, I think, um, something in marketing, it's like so many of us, um, or or especially it seems like when people first look at doing maybe their first videos or stuff, it's like, we forget what we would want to watch and instead people go for like they go for too much, you know, and and instead of trusting in the intelligence of your audience that they'll get it, you know, people overdo it so often. Um, Yeah. And so maybe a little more of like a little more subtle, a little more like lifestyle-oriented approach instead of the in-your-face. <laughs> yeah, of definitely. way. Um, okay, I want to ask you more about that, but first we're going to take a quick break to hear about our sponsor and then come right back. Today's episode is brought to you by Intel, and when they approached me about being a sponsor, it was easy to say yes, and not just because they're a $140 billion company. In 2012, Intel created World Password Day to help make us all safer online, and they've been really successful with it. The first year, they graded over a million passwords, meaning they tested them and told you how long it would take before it could be cracked. And then they managed to get other big organizations like Dell and Microsoft to join the movement as well. Personally, I think this is something legitimately good for all innovators and entrepreneurs, since we're not just trying to protect our own companies and bank accounts, but most of us interact with our customers online at some point, and if they don't feel safe, it just makes that interaction harder. Something else I think is interesting has to do with how on the show we're always talking about how a good idea isn't enough and how innovators need to be unique in attracting people to what they're doing. I think these guys have done some things that the rest of us can learn from. I was actually there four years ago when they launched this idea with essentially an outdoor pop-up event downtown Manhattan at the Flatiron building. And it was interesting how they made it fun to care if your password was easy to crack or not. They had this big carnival game booth where they let people swing those big hammer things that you ring a bell and can win prizes. But there was a catch. The size of hammer you might get to use to try for the prizes went from the huge-looking thing you're thinking of from a Popeye cartoon down to a regular household hammer, which was way harder. Uh, The way it got picked is because you went up to the booth and put in a password on the keyboard that's like your password, and then it graded, how long it would take someone to crack your password. Some of them were super long, some of them were short. Basically, if it was really hard to crack your password, you got this huge hammer, which made it easy to win prizes. And if your password was super easy to crack, you got a tiny household hammer. Well, this attracted tons of people passing by because everyone was at the booth was laughing about either how bad their password was or some big linebacker sized guy who's trying to ring the bell with a tiny hammer. After... After your turn, everybody got uh, a big thing of blue cotton candy uh, for free. And so there's all these people walking around with big smiles and blue cotton candy, and it really caught on and then caught on online. Uh, I'll post a video about it on today's interview page. The thing is, I'm not the most security conscious guy, and it actually worked on me. Uh, I started using passwords that were longer, a whole sentence with spaces in it, things like that. And this year, what the push is is something right along with something the president just talked about in an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal. They usually call it multi-factor authentication. It's when you add like a fingerprint or a face scan or a text code, depending what your device will let you do, so that it's a password plus something else to keep your device safe and your information safe. when my buddy was getting me to do this on my Gmail account, uh, Gmail calls it two-step verification. He used to be the network security guy for Stanford University. The thing that really put me over the top was when he was like, Jess, what is your liability and like, what's your reputation loss going to be if you end up leaking sensitive client data? Like, It's one thing to lose your stuff, but what if you lose your client's stuff because you didn't do something as simple as, as multi-factor authentication, which really sounds like a mouthful, but really works. Also, there's a funny celebrity that got involved this year. They're not letting anybody say who it is, but on Thursday, Cinco de Mayo, um, May 5th, they're going to be announcing it and putting out all the videos on passwordday.org. So check them out and support Intel for supporting the show. Now back to the interview. Yeah. So another thing I want to talk about is that life doesn't go according to plan for entrepreneurs, <laughs> any entrepreneur, um, you know, yeah. innovators out there we everybody has this great idea around the boardroom table or in the garage yeah. or late at night on the laptop and then real life happens um yeah. talk to us about uh talk to us about actually you know being a year into this process the kickstarter is live and you realize you've done it wrong and you need to shift
1: yeah so um yeah so i i when i as i was preparing my my for the campaign we had our final samples i would take my bags around to see my friends and see anybody i knew and be like hey what do you think of this bag and and they'd look at it and be like, Oh man, that's really cool. Like that looks like you're doing you know, you got you're on the right track. And and they would ask, like, well, so how much do you think you're gonna sell them for? And I would say, Well, probably like two fifty. And when everyone would kind of get this face, like the shock on their face, and I'd say, Yeah, but it's gonna be made in the US. And then everyone would say, Oh, well that makes really that makes a lot of sense if you're gonna make it in the US because it's gonna be more expensive. And and I took that that acknowledgement of them saying that makes sense to being like, Oh, they're gonna buy one. At two fifty, and I just assumed. And everyone that I had this conversation with, I would just assume, oh, they're going to buy one too, and they're going to buy one, and they're going to buy one. And um, so we launched our Kickstarter. The price is one fifty. Nobody bought the bag. Two fifty. I mean, did you started it? We started at two fifty. Okay, and just just nobody bought the bag. I mean, we our first day. I mean, I say nobody, but like the first day, we sold eighteen. And one of the metrics, the biggest metrics you can find in in this huge Shopify study, is that if you want to fund, like guarantee funding, you know, hitting your hitting fifty percent of your goal in the first twenty four hours is one of the most important things you can do because it affects the algorithm at Kickstarter where it pushes your your product page up higher in their searches, so you'll come up easier. And so I just started freaking out. I was I was freak. I was losing my mind. The next day we were um, listed as. So no, the next day we had less sales and it was just like a slow day on the sales. I think we did like 13 or 14. And then on Thursday, actually, we were listed as project of the day, design project of the day, which is really cool. And we actually got a project that we love um, link onto our page from or Kickstarter was saying they really liked our bag and like our the way we did our campaign. And with even with those two things happening on Thursday, we only sold like 16 bags and we were at. About eighteen, we'd raised about eighteen thousand dollars in the in or no, I think of that at that point we were like fifteen thousand dollars three days in, and I was just freaking out. I was losing my mind, and I was like, "We have to do all some this dirt. hard work. It didn't, yeah, it, we
0: weren't able to accomplish."
1: Yeah, because you and you know I was looking at it, and people were like, "Well, you'll probably fund," and it's like, "Well, I don't just want to fund. I didn't just spend the last year of my life working on something to just fund. Like I wanted to do something interesting." Um, with, with uh, Kickstarter and something that we could always be like, yeah, we raised $240,000 on, on Kickstarter, you know, we raised $200,000 on Kickstarter and actually make people be like, oh, okay, that's interesting. You've done something interesting. Tell me more about you. And I just, I just knew we had to change. We had to make a change. And so I, I remember sitting in my office and I was like, okay, what can I do to this product to change it? And I was like, well, we're not going to like make the bag different. We're not going to change anything on the design because this is the bag I want. And so I was like, well, then we have to lower the price. And so I started doing a a bunch of like price research and I had like 48 hours. I was like, I have to make a change within 48 hours because or our campaign will be dead. There'll be no way to revive it. And so um, I started calling everyone I knew, emailing everyone I know, texting everyone I know, and just being like, hey, have you seen my bag? If they said yes, be like, hey, would you buy my bag? And and they'd say, well, you know, it's too expensive. And I say, well, what if my bag costs... And I kind of picked a number between 150 and 175. And I'd say, what if you bought it for, what if it was 169? And they would say, most people would be like, well, oh, yeah, dude, I'd buy it right now. I'd be like, okay, so right now I'm going to send you a PayPal invoice for that bag. Will you buy it? And, you know, I get people be like, no, nah, sorry, I don't need a bag. And it's like, okay, great. But the overwhelming majority of people would be like, yeah, dude, send me an invoice. I will, I will buy it right now. And I said, okay, well, I'm going to change the price in two days. And I'd write down their name and I'd be like, and I'm going to email you when I change the price. And will you buy it when I email you? And they say, yeah, I'm definitely going to buy it. And so that's what we did. And so, you know, over the course of 48 hours, I think I talked to like, I don't know, like 60, 70 people on the phone, texted another 20, 30 people and emailed I don't know, hundreds. Of, I mean, it just, it felt like I just contacted everyone I knew through LinkedIn. I, I probably even like sent you a message. I don't even, I don't remember, but <laughs> um and uh, at the end, I was like, "Okay, we're going to change the price." So we changed it to 149 on Saturday. So like Thursday morning was when we kind of I started really freaking out, and I started like, "Okay, how am I going to change? If we're going to change the price, where am I going to move the manufacturer to? Because we can't do it in the U.S." And so I was able to contact some of my agents who who do a lot of work out of Asia, show them my bag, talked about my bag, get a price quote, um, talk to their manufacturers, get everything kind of lined up, and we were able to kind of see some options and samples and stuff like that that manufacturers had done to be like, okay, we can hit the quality because we'll just buy the same materials, just make it in a less expensive country so we can provide this bag for people. And and so we went through this whole process. It was crazy. I mean like forty eight hours, I don't think I slept the whole time. And Saturday morning was when we rolled out the new price and that day we sold more bags. I think we sold as many bags that day than we did any other day of our campaign up to that point. Mm. And then each day thereafter we sold more bags and we just, we just saw this just jump in our campaign. Just all, and you could just like feel the momentum and, and people's excitement. And we ended up funding, like hitting our funding goal of $40,000 by the next Thursday. And then we hit like a hundred thousand dollars the following Thursday. And then we just haven't slowed down from that point. And and we just kind of kept taking off and, and it was really, I mean, it was just really exciting and just, it was just like a really great validating moment. One of those moments when you're like, okay, here's a problem and you fix it. And then afterwards you're like, Oh, I can fix problems. Look at that. <laughs> so it was, it was just a crazy time. And, and, uh, I mean, it's one of those things that you learn, like, you know, seeing from freshly pick, like, okay, there's a problem. Let's fix it. How do we fix this problem? Like, you know, there's no one coming through to fix it. We got to jump on this and fix it. So that's kind of how we were able to get through that.
0: Well, it it is fun to hear such a real story, you know people like to tell war stories years later after the panic is long gone. And, but yeah. the details are also maybe a little fuzzier too. So it's fun to yeah. hear something that happened a month ago. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and <then> like yeah. <laughs> not sleeping for the 48 hours and all that. And, yeah. and, but also fun to hear that it worked, you know, that, the that like on the fly testing and like yeah. taking on what you're on instead of throwing in the towel or something like that. Right. That you yeah. were able to pull it off.
1: Yeah. And I mean, for me, like, I mean, this was kind of like, so when I, I graduated in law school in 2011, it was in like the middle of the recession. And I remember you know, I had two kids and my wife and we moved, um, from Omaha to Utah because that's kind of where I knew the most people that were attorneys. And I remember we, we showed up, we had no job. We were like running out of money. My wife was able to get a teaching job at a local university as a, like an English teacher. And, and we were just like looking at our bank account and it's like shrinking, shrinking, shrinking. And, and I was like, man, I gotta find a job. And so I went out, and there's this great uh, like community resource where they teach you how to like search for jobs, which is kind of funny because I was like, well, I'm a, I'm an attorney, I should just be able to get a job. But they like, you know, I learned all these like networking skills, and it was like, you know, they're like, you have to take it to get a job. You know, it takes you six months of like networking on average. You know, and I was just like, oh crap, I don't have six months. And they're like, this is what you should do every day for six months. And I was like, well, I'm gonna do three times that much every day until I get a job and I should get a job in a month and a half. And like, you know, we were like, just like networking, you know, going out, seeing people. And I just spent like, you know, three months just calling people all day long and doing all this crazy stuff and, and not like stopping. And, and we got a job and it was like, okay, we know how to, I can do things that I need to be done. And I think that kind of like led into like the Kickstarter where it's like, okay, here's a problem. Let's solve it. And let's step of comfort zone and do something that, you know, we don't really want to do and ask people directly, will you buy this? You know, and, and doing that and just kind of like, you know, after like other experiences, like having to go out and like look for a job and like really step out of your comfort zone really just kind of made, when I was in the Kickstarter, made it really easy where I didn't have to think about stepping out of my comfort zone because it was just like, this is what I want to do. And if I want to do it, I have to do, have to be uncomfortable. So I'm going to be uncomfortable. (laughs) Sounds like
0: somebody inventing something awesome. Um, (laughs) Well, uh, some of the things we like to ask all guests, um, One is uh, books. Are you, are you much of a book guy or a podcast guy? Is there, are there things that you think uh, you'd recommend to other innovators and entrepreneurs out there?
1: Yeah. So I listen, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I do listen to a lot of books. I'm more into biographies personally. Um, I really like to read stories about people that have done um, really incredible things in their life and just kind of like what, what was their process? What did they do? And just kind of glean stuff from that information. One of the my favorite books I actually read in the kind of going up to my Kickstarter was uh, there was a book. It's a book about the Wright brothers um, by David McCullough. And he talks about how they, you know, figured out how to fly a plane and, and figure out the motor and just kind of that story. And I was listening to that while I was working on my backpack. And it was just so inspiring. I'd listen to it every morning when I went on my bike rides and just kind of like do you, there. Do you
0: remember the name of the book? We'll put a link to it on your page. Um, let me.
1: Let me Google it really quick, just so I. Here, <laughs> I'll Google it. You tell us about. You tell us about it. Uh, yeah. So, it, it, and it just it it was just so inspiring, like their process and how they didn't have schooling, they didn't have training, and what they were doing, and but they just had like this, this crazy, almost maniac focus on doing this one thing and just believing that they could do it and not being afraid to put it all on the line and to do it. And that's, it just kind of really impacted me to see that. And then there's also another great book about Thomas Edison that I listened to this last year, the kind of his process of like inventing things and just kind of taking those chances and seeing people like take those chances. And and even though you're, you know, you're reading it, but it's like, people can do it. People have done it, you know, before they do it, they'll do it again. And and so I, I really like biographies about, people who've done really cool things. I listened to, um, by, by the way, I, that um, book
0: is called, is just called the right brothers.
1: Yes. Um,
0: the Wright brothers, you know, it is fun. One of the things I think are great about biographies, you know, I, um, Alice Schroeder did a epic one on, uh, Warren Buffett. That's like really comprehensive. Yeah. Is it's, we live in such a soundbite economy. You know, so many people were, were telling us, Oh, you can't have a long show like this. Nobody wants long form. You know, it's yeah. people only have short attention spans. You can only do sound bites. And we yeah. looked at, you know, we looked at some of the other folks out there like a Tim Ferriss or James Altucher, people who aren't afraid to do longer form and yeah. they have the chance to get more in depth. Like, yeah. Great thing about those biographies is you don't just get like the trite principles. You actually get yeah. to see them applied and see the hiccups involved in them. And it's like you get more of the nuances by getting it in context instead of, you know, uh, uh, on a PowerPoint presentation, be nice yeah. to others, work hard. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, I, you always hear, you know, you always see like the books on business that will be like the Wright brothers and they'll tell some story about the Wright brothers. And I always like, whenever I see that stuff. And I, I think this is kind of going back to law school training where you're like, whenever someone cites something, you're like, well, let's go read what you just cited. Let's go actually see <laughs> the context that's in and what actually happened. And I really think going to law school, like, wrecked to me sort of to an extent, because you just, I'm always like, well, what actually happened? And so that's kind of where I got into biographies because it's like, well, what actually happened? And, and I only read biographies written by certain people just because, you know, I've read biographies by other people. And then you find out, well, that's all garbage. Like they mistold the story. They took it out of the context. And so hmm. I read a lot of biographies and I, like you said, I think, and it's not only like, cause everyone always likes to talk about like the end principle they learned but I like to see the process of them developing that principle. Cause it's like, you, you know, you hear people will say something, you know, about Thomas Edison and how he was so great at doing all these things. But then it's like, what was the, how did he get to that point? Cause you know, you hear that and you're like, well, I'm not like that. Well, maybe I'll never be like that. But then you read his book and you're like, well, he started out like everyone else. Then he had these successes and he started to believe him, believe in himself. And then these other great things happen. And so it's like really great to actually see like the process and, and be like, they're just normal people who, you know, just really stuck at something and started to believe in themselves and they were able to do something.
0: You know, I feel like the Richard Branson (laughs) one is great at like, uh, his autobiography, you know, um, he doesn't pull the punches. He doesn't tell you like, Oh, I'm this genius. I knew it was going to work out. He's like, he's always talking about when I almost screwed it all up. And when we were, you know, hours away from bankruptcy and you know, like, um, it's, uh, I feel like it's reality of like, okay, when life gets hard for the rest of us, we can expect it because the heroes we luck up to had to go through that too. Why should we be exempt, huh?
1: Exactly. Yeah. Well, even like, I mean, the the Wright Brothers book, what's fascinating is it goes through like all these things they learned and how many times they tried and failed with their their plane. And it, it almost becomes like comical, like how much they, how many times they failed and how many how they just wouldn't give up. And you're like, you, you got to expect failure. And even after you succeed, you're going to have failures, you know? And I think it's great to see that and to like, be like, I don't know, kind of helps at least for me, it helps train my head to be like, to, that when bad things happen to be like, this is normal. Mm -hmm. Like respond, don't lay down on the ground and cry. (laughs) Get on the phone for 48 hours. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Um, so another
0: one we always ask people is uh, for our charity, Child Rescue, trying to prevent child sex trafficking or, or help kids that are in escape and help aftercare. Um, as we're trying to get society to care more about this, to help more individuals want to join the cause and, and help these kids, what advice would you have for us in in that
1: world? Uh, I mean, what, number one, what you're doing is incredible. Um, I think when we met you know, back a couple of months ago, or I guess even farther, I guess it was six months ago, and, like, you you told me that story. I have, like, one of the – probably the biggest bleeding hearts. And especially for, like, kids, like, like, I can't watch, like, the African starving kids. I just cry. And I'm, like, just take my money. I'll cry. <laughs> and I, I just have a huge bleeding heart. And whenever, like, kids are involved, like, I just get – it's, like, whatever you need, take it. Like, I'll give you my clothes. I don't care. Take my clothes. Take whatever you need. Um, and so I think what you guys are doing is incredible. Like, to actually – and I think the fact that you – that you just kind of it, you just started it like you didn't have like millions of dollars that you could pour into it and make it this really big charity You were just like no there's a problem I'm going to do whatever I can to solve it while I try to start my career career while I try to do all these other things and you just kind of went after it and so I like I just I love that like story of what you did and how you you're just so like like eh, passionate about fixing these problems. And you've been able to bring in all these great special forces guys who can help advise you on, uh, help, you know, getting kids out of sex slavery around the world, which is so hard to wrap your head around when you live in the U S that that actually happens. But it's amazing that you're doing that. Um, as far as advice, I mean, I don't know, Jess. like you guys are killing, like, I, I mean, as far, maybe we could work on a crowdfunding project next, next time you do one and I could come in and help you kind of, Maybe we could push the needle and break a hundred thousand, and really like, you know, help a bunch of people. yeah okay. you know, I'll, t- I'll
0: take you up on that. We uh, yeah, this aftercare orphanage. We've got our filmers, um, Stephen Lepcha and Carter. They're going down to go uh film the one we put the down payment on. We want to build an extra building so a bunch more survivors can get yeah. real help. Um, yeah. So uh, I'll take you up on that when we when we when we need the, to do the push to build the next building. Well, I'll hit you up for that. So
1: yeah. Yeah, I mean that. I, that's the only way. I mean, I think what you're doing. I think you're doing such a great job. I mean, that's the only way I can help you, and I'd love to help. I'd love to. <laughs> okay. Um,
0: love
1: know, that. Let's let's raise a hundred thousand dollars and get a bunch of people out of sex slavery. Well, actually,
0: for a hundred grand, we can build a building that will house eighty more kids. Um, okay. Including like a like a facility where they can learn life skills. Um yeah. We've got a bakery, and we've got a, a a sewing area where they can become a tailor and okay. stuff planned in and stuff. So. Um, Okay, I'm going to hit you up offline about this. So let's do it. Let's raise
1: $100,000. Let's let's get another 80 kids out of sex slavery. I'm down. (laughs) Let's do it. Be careful. I'm going to take you up on this. No, no, no. I'm serious. I'm 100% serious. I'll do like I'll, I'll guilt other people into helping us. It'll be awesome. (laughs)
0: Yeah, I love that about you. Okay. Uh, Next, (laughs) um, we asked people, you know, to share an experience about like, if you think about someone early in your life or early in your career, that really like set an example for you on how to treat others? Um, Like who comes to mind? What is it about them? Or can you think of any experiences of like maybe when they're in a tough situation and they really set the example for you and like why you want to be more like them?
1: Um, That's a great question. So there's a couple of attorneys that um, really had like a huge impact on me when I first got out of law school and I was trying to find a job and I was just like, calling everyone hitting up everyone and um, one of them is uh, Dave Brown he's like an older I mean, he's not even an attorney anymore he's like transitioned out into a vice president at uh, a, a big energy company and and he just he like I remember I talked to him and I explained to him you know everything that was going on and he he was just he was just great he just sat me down and like you know really like was so nice to me when he didn't need to be and and helped me kind of figure out like just the words I, the the words that should come out of my mouth when I talk to attorneys, like what they were looking to hear Mm. Um, and, and uh, helping me like hone my pitch and like kind of take the anxiety out of someone, me showing up at someone's office and helping them feel more comfortable. Um, He was amazing. And then uh, there's, there's a couple more attorneys and I can't remember their names. I know I'm going to remember them later that just kind of, they had no reason to care about me. There was no like family connection. There was no friend connection. It was just people that I would just meet that just really took an interest in me and like helping me be successful just because they wanted to help. And I think that kind of um, like just that idea of like just helping someone with no like care of like impressing someone else or helping, you know, doing it because someone else asked on your behalf. But just because it's like, look, like you're a good, you seem like a nice guy. I want to help you. That that's really kind of, I've carried that forward with me from that experience, where I just try to treat people like, just try to help people, because everyone you know needs help in life, and why not be a nice person that helps people? And it, you know, it can it can never hurt you to help other people. If anything, it just like helps you feel better, and even that's enough reward for me. It's just like the feeling of helping people and how, you know, it impacts their lives. So, I mean that. I guess that would kind of be like the yeah. one thing that I, I've kind of pulled out of like going all, you know, going like meeting lots of people is just trying to help other people, and and you can see it in you know older people, um, not not just these attorneys. There's a um, Nate Quigley; he's the CEO of Chatbooks, and he's done a ton of other startups, and he's just been like so nice. Like when since yeah. I, when I've been working on my own, and every time I had a prototype, I could take it by his office, and he would just sit there and talk with me for half an hour. And here he is running this like company that has like 30 employees and he didn't have, he didn't have a half an hour. You know, now that I'm like, I understand like how much I have going on. I'm like, he probably had like a hundred times what I have going on and he didn't have a half an hour, but he just gave it because he's just a nice guy and he just wants other people to be successful. And I think those are the type of people that, um, like, I want to, I want to be like people like that, that are just nice. And just help people not with no eye towards what can I get back out of it? And I think, that's kind of like the one thing that I really want to try to have and, and try to like give, I don't know if like give, I don't know if giving back's the right word, but just like have as part of my personality, just someone who helps and, and helps people without any thought of what I can get out of it.
0: It is interesting. What influence people who like they're willing to be generous, even when it wasn't on the agenda or when it's not convenient, you know, that yeah. like that willingness to like see someone in need and change my plans to help them, like, those people have a major impact on the world, don't you think?
1: Yeah, I agree. And, you know, and, and they have an enjoyable life because then they're just happy. Like, when you help people, you're happy. <laughs> like, that, isn't there, like, a primary song helping people? Ha- I don't know. Something like that. But it's it's just, like, a true principle. Like, when you give to others, like, it just, it's, it it ends up being really good for you in the end.
0: Sure. Um, speaking of your podcast, by the way, who, who have been... Uh, Besides, obviously me. Hello, but uh, (laughs) who have been who've been uh, some of your most fun interviews? Uh,
1: So um, I have two really good friends. They're married. Uh, They they run Albie and Fit. It's a women's fitness line out of Salt Lake. And I have traveled with them to Guatemala a couple times, and we knew we knew each other pretty well. And so when I interviewed them, it was just like it was really good because we were able to get past like the superficial questions that you sometimes ask where it's like, Oh, I don't know, Like, you, you know, you know more about them. Mm-hmm. And, um, and we got, we, she had, they had this story where they were talking about how they, they got a call cause they lived in Guatemala for right, a couple of years. Um, cause Liz, the, the wife of the, the couple, her family's from Guatemala. And they ended up living down there and running the family factory down there as they were kind of starting out trying to figure out what they were doing. And they got a call one morning from their factory and, and it was like really early. And they said, you need to come down and the police were there and someone had stolen all of their machines. And it was like, they were just like, Oh, it's over. Like our company's over. We're going to go back to the States. We'll find jobs. We'll figure it out. And they were just like, that was fun while we tried. And they were talking to Liz's dad and, and they said like, you know, like it's over, you know, it's, it's over. And he he was just like, what do you mean? It's over. You're not quitting. He's like, I got people. He's like, let's do this. And he just like (laughs) made it happen. And he went out and was able to like get machines. And like, by the end of the day, they had machines and their factory was working and going again. And it was just like this crazy story. And they were like, and Liz was like crying as she was telling the story. And I remember I was just sitting there and I was like, wow, I was like, this is like, like an incredible story. And it was just like such a like heart wrenching story and to see these, you know, and and now they're like, well, we just won't quit now because we we know we can get through anything. And, and that was one of my favorites just because of that story was so powerful and actually had a a powerful impact on me. And just like, you know, these friends, you know, I'm sitting there with my friends and they're like crying about something that happened, you know, six years previously was just like incredible. And, and um, so that was one of my favorite ones. Um, you know, of course, you, as you said, you were one of the <laughs> <Whatever. guests>. it, <laughs> Definitely. No, but you were because like that was kind of when I was starting and I was just like calling people and being like, oh, hey, you want to be interviewed? And I saw, you know, and, and I remember when I kind of looked at your bio and, and one of my favorite stories, and I it's funny, I've heard this story from a number of entrepreneurs that I've interviewed where it's essentially, hey, I was sitting somewhere and I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. Was, I think you were in design class and you were just like, I think you were listening to a uh <laughs> Yeah, I was listening a, to an audiobook. Yeah, you were listening to an audio book rather than doing your class studies, but you said, you know, something about, you know, you have to take a risk if you want to make money and you were just like, That's it, I'm taking a risk. And you stood up and just walked out of your class. And I remember hearing that story and just being um just being blown away by it. And I mean, and every time like I talk to someone who has a story where they're like, Oh, I just had this thought. And I just went and did it. And I didn't stop. It's just so powerful to hear and be like, and it worked. You did that and it worked. <laughs> That's debatable. So, it's like, totally debatable yeah, whether it worked. <laughs> it, well, I mean, you, I remember the story you had where like you had you, everything kind of gone wrong and you were like in your backyard. I think your wife was pregnant inside and and something you know, like the company you're working at had gone away. And the money that you had. Oh, yeah, no, to sal- like, When my sales company
0: failed. Yeah. And, yeah, and so my partner me didn't me. have all the money he owed me and we found exactly. out our insurance didn't cover our first daughter being born. That's so right. So those tens of thousands of dollars were our debt
1: and we, you know, we yeah. had like no money. So we may as well bet hundreds of thousands, right? And I remember you said you were like in your backyard and you had this moment where you're just like, we're not quitting. We're not going home. And you came in, and you told your wife like, we're not quitting. We're not going home. It's going to work. And she was like, all right, let's do it. And it worked. You know, I mean, like, I don't know. like, I love I, and that's one of the things like even though, you know, like the whole roundabout thing about the podcast was to prepare to run this Kickstarter and build up relationships. I mean, it was so motivating as I'm like in this stage of like, OK, I'm going to do this. I'm going to start it. I'm going to be an entrepreneur and I'm going to start selling things to like talk to people like twice a week that did it. And you're like, OK, I can do this. They well, did it. That person did it. I could do it too. You know what,
0: though? I'm so glad you brought that up. I feel like, you know, somebody explained something I felt and I feel like they just put it in better words. It might have been the same book that was talking about the windshield effect. But yeah, they just said like um, repetition breeds familiarity and reduces Uh, fear. Yeah. And so when you talk to enough people, it's like, you know, snowboarding, right? Every time we tell people we go backcountry snowboard backcountry snowmobile snowboarding, they're like, aren't you scared of avalanches? right or like you know and i talk to canadians about living in southern california they're like are you scared of crime we are like <laughs> i leave my surfboards in the backyard we don't lock our house no i don't i don't live in watts i don't live in compton yes. like <laughs> you know like um but that lack of familiarity often breeds fear or whatever right yeah. and and so you know like you said you go through a couple of big bumps in the road where you think i'm down and out this is over and you survive all of a sudden you're not quite as scared of falling down anymore yeah. But it's very similar when you hear other people's stories, right? Like I consider oh, this yeah, podcast definitely. like just an awesome excuse to meet the people I wish I knew. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. Oh, definitely. And, that, and that's kind of one of the things that I was – a primary focus of my podcast was how do I meet people that I want to meet that have great stories and that can, I can learn from.
0: Well, if everybody doesn't know, the, the podcast is called Entrepreneur Stories. We'll put a link to it on, on Joseph's page on Ideation Collective. Um, well listen man appreciate all the time um, we, we want to hear updates we're going to gonna update your page when you put out more of your funny videos um, we're going to hit you awesome. up when we're, uh, when we're ready to do the push for the Cusco expansion okay. and, uh, and again appreciate uh, your being generous with your stories Thanks for listening to today's episode. Before you go, my friends know about my total obsession with Mexican food, especially a shredded beef chimichanga or seared steak nachos. But this Cinco de Mayo, when you're enjoying some amazing tacos, remember to check out the new funny videos that we'll be launching on PasswordDay.org. Also, we hope you'll take the time to learn about the aftercare orphanage Child Rescue is helping build in Cusco, Peru at icollective.co slash childrescue. Get to Old Navy for star-spangled style. Right now, everything's on sale, up to 60% off. That's right, get everything from tees, shorts, dresses, and swim, all at 60% off. Now till July 7th at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid through 7-7, select styles only.